Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Kia ora and welcome to the Good Energy Project. Today I'm at Wellington Access Radio with Natalia Albert, who's currently the Wellington Central candidate for the Opportunities Party. I first met Natalia when she approached me to be part of an event she was leading, TEDx Wellington Women in 2015. That event was pivotal in my life and career. It gave me an opportunity to tell my story to a big audience, which gave me confidence and direction. I think that Natalia's influence was the key to that. She pulled together a team of women who are so encouraging and positive that I managed to overcome my doubts and quite a lot of um, resistance from the people around me and do a very scary thing. I think that was one of my first experiences of feminism in action and the atmosphere felt profoundly different to ones I'd been in before. She and her team believed in me before doubting me. I hadn't seen Natalia much since then and I was really delighted to see her face up large on posters as a Wellington Central candidate because I imagine she could hold that kind of encouraging space for people generally. It prompted me to get in touch with her and let her know how much I appreciated her influence back then. It's only since then that I've learnt more about Natalia's story. She's the daughter of a Mexican single mother. She lived in Canada, Mexico and the USA before she was 20. When she first came to New Zealand, she came up against systematic racism and struggled to get work. That was partly the reason she decided to host the TEDx event. She wanted to show employers what she could do. She also wanted to create a more inclusive space specifically for women and those who may find it hard to be heard otherwise. So my experience of being encouraged was due to her experience of being excluded and her efforts to do something about that. In this project, I've been looking at the economy as a space that we all exist in. It's clear that in order to address problems like climate change, we need to be able to draw on the strengths of all parts of our society. I'm really interested to talk to Natalia about how we can make our economy more inclusive. What would it mean for an economy to be a space that enables and encourages diverse people to participate? What might we need to do to get there? So welcome, Natalia. <laughs> Hi, Lou. Thank Hi. you for that beautiful introduction. Uh, that's my pleasure. So nice to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, to begin with, I've got some sort of random questions that I've asked my other guests as well. Great. About your sort of background. Awesome. Uh, so the first one is, do you remember when you were a child what absorbed your attention? Yes. Um, I spent quite a lot of time alone when I was a child. I didn't have brothers or sisters or siblings and my mother was working and we moved a lot from countries and I remember just spending a lot of time trying to figure out what to do in the day. Not bored, 
I was never oh, bored. Yeah. yeah. I was just always trying to figure out what to do, mm -hmm. whether it be video games or drawing or reading or tutors for my dyslexia or mm -hmm. sports. It was always how am I going to fill the time while I'm by myself before mm -hmm. my mother comes home from work? Mm -hmm. And I, that's what I have kind of just a vivid memory of. Yeah. Do you remember what gave you energy? Yeah. I think... Um, Sports and activities and my tutors for my dyslexia, I remember, were quite a cup-filling type of space for me. I think also, I remember I had a really strong period of video games, giving mm. me a lot of comfort, and yeah, it felt okay. like a companion in the mm. room, mm. and that I wasn't alone. Mm. Yeah, I think those things. I can't think of one thing, like it wasn't animals, or what, like mm. I was, mm. because I grew up in so many different cities, at different times and different environments, I wasn't consistent with a lot of things, and I just yeah. had to be really resourceful yeah. with what was around. And it was, yeah, just learning has always been quite stimulating. I think also because of my dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just engaging in stuff, figuring yeah. things out, and working out how to be in a new place on your own. And yeah, that like figuring out the space and the language and the education. Like all the learning has always stimulated me in spite of the dyslexia almost. Mm, mm. And my next question is, uh, do you remember when you first became aware of money and how did you feel about it? I do, I remember it quite well, uh, actually. I think I was six, I can't remember if I was six or seven, but my mother came up to me and asked me if it was okay for her to sell my toys and my Nintendo because mm. we didn't have any money and we oh, had to no. do a garage sale. Oh, okay. And I don't, remember feeling angry because I don't remember I think understanding what she was actually talking about mm. it was just like yes <laughs> yeah because I guess um yeah you wouldn't have probably had an experience of sharing stuff with brothers and, and sisters. then I didn't I never shared anything before so I didn't have that experience of someone taking something from me mm. I didn't my mother was very hardworking, and even though there was a lot of kind of neglect and I was alone a lot, I was never deprived from food and house, mm, mm. right? And so I didn't understand what that meant. Mm. I, the culture shock came later mm. of going from having money to no money. Yeah, right. But in yeah. that moment, I just remember my mother going, is it okay? And I remember her asking me, is it okay if we sell your toys? Yeah. yeah. And how did you feel about it? I think I was just confused. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my next question is, uh, do you remember becoming aware of the climate crisis and how did that affect you? I do remember being aware of the climate crisis with Al Gore's documentary. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that quite well. Yeah. It felt like a, and it was interesting because it felt like a pop culture thing, not a crisis thing. Okay, yeah. What do you mean by that? I think I just... I mean, climate change wasn't, I think, I grew up talking or thinking about. I, Mexico wasn't a place where that was discussed. I was quite young, and I just related everything that came from the States as mm. pop yeah, culture. Okay. Yeah. Because the States packages everything in yeah, this way. Yeah, their yeah. politics, their arts, their literature, everything's kind of packaged in this yeah. very poppy way. Mm. Um, and I just remember Al Gore. And then I immediately after that remember Leonardo DiCaprio being involved <laughs> in climate change. So I just yeah. have these so ideas it's like of a them. Movie it feels of... like, it felt like a movie. Yeah. And did that make it feel less real? 
Yeah, yeah, very distant. Yeah. Yeah, as a Mexican, and it's just never in my psyche. It was just mm. never something mm. we spoke about. My mother advocated for women's issues, for single mm. parent issues, mm. for mm. scarcity issues, poverty, mm. benefits. Mm. Those were the topics we spoke about. Climate change was never in our radar or our psyche. Mm. Mm. So it didn't sort of have an immediate effect on your everyday life? God, no. Mm. No. Mm. Um, and um, what brought you to New Zealand? I guess that struggle from Mexico and being raised by a single mother and not being able to make ends meet. And yeah. so my mother stopped being a diplomat, so I wasn't entitled to living in, Me in Canada and the States. And I tried via normal visa routes and I couldn't afford them. Mm. And my mother was married with a person that lived in Wellington. Oh, okay. And so this person said, well, I will give you somewhere to live and some money for six months and yeah. see if you can find a visa here. I was yeah. 29. Yeah. I was very lost. I was very broke. I was in a lot of debt. Mm. Um, mm. I had overcome a lot of adversity in my 20s and mm. in my teens. And that was like a, a lifeline. Yeah, okay. So yeah. I came here and I took him up on the offer and I tried and hustle a work visa. Yeah. Unsuccessfully. And I met the neighbor, <laughs> okay. which I started dating. Mm. And I remember I went to the Wellington Community Law Center every Tuesday evening where yeah. they gave migrants free legal advice. Mm -hmm. And I went there every Tuesday for six months trying to navigate the immigration system. And he heard me talk to Michael, my boyfriend, and he's like, oh, if you have a boyfriend, you should get a partnership yeah. visa. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you just started going out. We had just started going out. We'd been going out for, I think, like three months. And then I came home one day to him and I said, I'm not finding a visa. I'll need to leave in four weeks unless you want to be my sponsor. <laughs> really yeah. awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally expecting him to be like, that's a bit match, all the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he just, as a really logical person that he is, he said, no, I don't want you to leave. And if what I need to do for you to stay is sign this paper, where mm -hmm. do I sign? And mm -hmm. we're still together 12 years later. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what about the, the process of looking for work? How did that happen? That was awful. Yeah, I really can't state strongly enough mm. how difficult it is for women of non-English speaking countries to break into the labor market in Wellington. Mm. And I want to make the distinction about Wellington. I don't know about Auckland. I don't mm. know about Christchurch. I don't mm. know the rest of the country. But in Wellington, for migrant women of non-English speaking countries, which is also a very important distinction to make, this mm. isn't all migrants and this isn't all women. Mm. Migrant women from English-speaking countries face completely different set of circumstances mm. than migrants from non-English-speaking countries. Yeah. And I faced years mm. of relentless xenophobia, mm. of government, private, temping jobs, recruitment agencies, coaches telling me that until I got rid of my experience in Mexico and replaced it with Wellington-based, no mm. one was going to hire me. Mm. Get rid of your experience. Get what rid of my experience. What a crazy thing to be told. And with such confidence. Mm. <laughs> like not even realizing that there was something wrong. And Nothing. Mm. And I think we've moved forward and away in that space, mm. but I still think we have this positive bias 
in Wellington as to how inclusive we actually are. Mm, There's, mm. I think, a threshold in the mm. inclusiveness where they will support diversity up until certain groups. And I definitely feel that migrant from non-English speaking countries, disabled community, like mobility issues, yeah, right. are two of the group trans mm -hmm. and gender non-binary are probably the three of the most oppressed mm. groups in Wellington. And I'll also make the distinction between those groups in Pacific and Maori mm. who are also discriminated against. However, there are formal mandates right. yeah. to support Maori and Pacific in a way that there aren't formal mandates for, migrant. for migrants, disabled and transgendered mm. Mm. groups. Interesting, yeah. And so I get the sense that that has affected your path a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's one way of saying it. Yeah, it definitely shaped and carved a direction for me. Mm. So I did what I always do, which is do what I have to do to survive. Mm. And I had to find a job mm. to survive. What did you do? How did you manage to get like to where you are now from there? Yeah, um, so I got a job, whatever job I could, which was washing dishes and parking cars. Mm -hmm. So I did that for like a year. Okay. And once I got my work visa, because there was a transition there, I applied to Messi University for some papers just mm -hmm. to put in my CV mm -hmm. that I was enrolled at Messi University and I started a nonprofit while working full time mm -hmm. to demonstrate that I could do something in Wellington. Mm -hmm. So I started the women's movement. It started off by being the Wellington Women's Walking Project. Okay, cool. I um, got 50 women to walk 100Ks oh, and amazing. fundraised $50,000 yeah. for Oxfam. Yeah. I got an award. Oh, cool. Amazing. <laughs> and yeah. then that matured into TEDx Woman. Yeah, uh, nice. And I yeah. did that. And mm. as I progressed the nonprofit and my academic career on the side, yeah. I went from 30K a year to 40K a year right. to 50K yeah. a year to 60K Gosh. a year. But it took me seven years yeah. to get to a pay band that mm. reflected my skills. Oh, that's And crazy. I had to work full time, study part time, mm. and do a nonprofit. So the mm. amount of work I had to do mm. versus other groups mm. Mm. is mm. completely unfair mm. and justified in the xenophobic hesitation that Wellington has against mm. these particular groups. Mm. And what has inspired you to get into politics? Well, I think just by accident, just the same path yeah. of being exposed. So when I decided to study, just to put something on my CV, I said, well, I've always been interested in politics. My mother has always had a very polarizing style of debating about politics. Yeah, okay. And I didn't want to be like her. Yeah. <laughs> so I just started, I decided to do a Bachelor of Arts at Messi, mm -hmm. major in politics. And then that's just a string that accidentally has mm -hmm. evolved into me being very interested and informed and involved with the role of politicians and the government mm, mm. in New Zealand. So mm. I did a lot of political theory, a lot of political history, a lot mm. of political science in New Zealand as part of my academic mm. career, which I only did to replace my skills and my CV. <laughs> okay. like there's there's yeah. no purpose here. I'm a surviving animal. Yeah. Like I just do things for survival. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just evolved into this incredible career and life and purpose and motivation. Mm. And now I use all the skills and knowledge that I gained through all the work I did. Yeah. Hopefully to the service of the groups. Yeah, yeah. And use my privilege for that. So how did you come to be a candidate? Like what... What brought that about? 
I, oh yeah, I left that out, sorry. I, so I decided to volunteer for the Opportunities Party when I saw that candidates and politicians were debating in a way that was increasing polarization. Mm. And I felt that because of my academic background and my professional background, I could be a volunteer for TOP to help candidates campaign in a way that didn't polarize, regardless of the policy that they were mm -hmm. talking about. Mm. And so I sent TOP an email with all this explanation and my qualifications and my mm. CV, and they're mm. like, yeah, sure, you can be a volunteer, but why don't you consider yourself being a candidate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it didn't take long. I'm doing a PhD sabbatical, so I had the time. Um, and I said, why not? Cool. And because um, you're the deputy leader. I am the that deputy was a, leader. That just happened in March, did it? That was recent. That it was happened quite, in June. That was quite a quick um, it was. <laughs> it was quick, and I think I am very grateful for that opportunity, and of course I took it. Um, and the Opportunities Party wanted a strong representation in Wellington Central. Yeah, okay. And yeah. it, uh, Raf Manji, the leader, wanted a deputy that had worked in Parliament mm, and understood mm. kind of the Wellington Central mm. government political environment, and I have been studying it and working in it mm. very formally for six seven years now yeah yeah um yeah i guess studying political science helps in doing politics as a verb uh it's politicking it's politicking mm. and because i've i love this quote from karate kid that <laughs> says that you need to in order to break a rule you need to know the rules uh yeah and i yeah. feel like my formal training in politics helps yeah. me be way more creative uh, and flexible yeah. with how i think about politics mm. because i know mm. the rules mm. the formal rules really well Ah, that's cool. Maybe that might have had something to do yeah. with my being offered the deputy role. Yeah. And so now only like a half a year or so in, how are you feeling? I'm feeling really energized mm -hmm. and really motivated, but I am intellectually burnt out. Mm. The campaign has taken a real toll on my nervous system. It's the first time I've ever done this. Wellington Central is a really informed electorate. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of events. Mm. So the volume of engagement, mm. I went from no engagement to 150% <laughs> engagement. And yeah. no matter how extroverted I am, yeah. it's taken a toll on my nervous system. So mm. I'm looking forward to the campaign ending mm. and either me governing with top in parliament yeah. or continuing my PhD studies in mm. November. Mm. So um, my focus in this good energy project that I'm doing has well, it started with the topics of climate change and economics and how our economic system is affecting climate change. And it's kind of broadened since then, because I guess what I've learned so far is that our economic system is putting pressure on the environment and also on people. And I want to be part of economic system change that helps to release the potential of people and helps to heal the environment. And I like thinking about the economy as a space that we all exist in. And I just wondered about your thoughts on what aspects of this sort of economy space are working and what aspects aren't working and what aspects are excluding people. That's a big question. But. It is. It's a great question. And I love thinking about the economy as a space mm. that we all live in. I think that what's working really well, and I'll come at it as a politician and a public servant, mm. I think the well-being budget that the Labour government did with New Zealand First and the Greens is a innovative, progressive, groundbreaking piece mm. of policy. Mm. The Living Standards Framework 
the well-being indicators that stats developed mm -hmm. and all that work that went into that first term I think has the potential to transform the way we do policy yeah, for a right. really long time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited that it's such a formal thing mm -hmm. and that it was initiated by a national government under ah. Bill English and his social investment yeah. vision mm -hmm. uh, with the integrated data infrastructure and Bill English did quite a lot actually for well-being and thinking ah, about the economy differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited that the labor government picked it up and did something quite profound. Mm. I think they dropped the ball a little bit with COVID and right, we'll give them all the out of jail free cards <laughs> necessary, but I would mm. like, and I feel quite optimistic that whoever gets into government, whether it be national labor in 2023, they will pick up that social investment mm. perspective that is quite grounded in nationals. Right. Views. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I feel optimistic about mm. that. But it's a bit of cross-party agreement around. It is absolutely cross-party, yeah. and I that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. What I think we're not getting right is the accessibility component. Mm. And I want to shift the conversation from inclusion to accessibility. Okay. What do you mean by that? I mean a couple of things. I mean accessibility infrastructure and that's hardware, software, systems and processes. So from our buildings being accessible, mm. in our meeting rooms, in our offices, in our jobs, to the information we consume, the information the government produces, at the mm. moment it's not accessible. It's actually quite inaccessible. Mm. Mm. Even though they're transparent and there's a lot of information out there, it's can... so exclusive in the yeah. way it's produced yeah, okay. that unless you have a really high level of literacy and a lot of time, yeah, yeah. You can't really consume it in a mm. way that um, encourages a democratic engagement model with mm. people. Mm. And the other thing about accessibility, it's this notion of the cost of accessibility uh, okay. that we're not talking about. Yeah. And I feel it's a massive blind spot that's hindering. So it costs to do all that, like if you release some document you have to translate it into different languages and exactly and that's yeah. a great example translating documents costs a lot of money for mm. the government and we're not factoring those costs mm. into the budgets mm. and so it's really hindering the government's capacity to be accessible so why is accessibility so important I think accessibility is paramount mm. in guaranteeing that the underrepresented groups can participate mm. At the moment, they can't participate because the information is not there for them. If you're blind, if your English is a second language, if you're neurodiverse, if you have mobility issues, mm. if you don't have access to internet, you won't be able to understand what, or find or care or know where to find this information. And I think it's creating a big distance between people and the government. Yeah. And yeah. it's eroding the trust. Yeah. I think that something about the TEDx Wellington Women event was... Like, I didn't know about any of it, any of this sort of focus on accessibility at the time. All I knew was that when I was part of it, there was something about it that made mm. me feel like I could be there and I could participate in a fuller way than usual. Yeah, I, I have the feeling like putting the effort in for some people will actually include a whole bunch of people that we don't even know about. Yes, and I think if you must prioritize inclusion as an outcome. Mm. But inclusion is the 
outcome of being accessible. Uh, I see. Right? Yeah. Like we're wanting to jump the gun and go from no, nothing yeah. to inclusion when inclusion is a feeling people have yeah, okay. as a result of things we do that are accessible uh, yeah, and inviting yeah. and welcoming yeah. and open-minded. Yeah. And you mentioned that like our parliament at the moment is the most diverse that it's been. Yeah, so that's a, a point that I like to make. When we talk about diversity and inclusion, we go immediately to representation. Mm. And representation is important. You need it. Mm. But this government has been the most diverse government, and it's also the government where the most amount of polarization and lack of trust has ensued. Yeah, that's interesting. Because yeah. no one's talking about the systems, mm. the structural issues that mm. these politicians that are diverse are facing. Yeah. That yeah. they can't change. Right, yeah. So they're within the structure that's actually influencing the outcome. Correct. Yeah. And my specialty academically and professionally has been in understanding the role of institutions ah. and the difference between what a person within an institution can do yeah. and when it just fully transforms to the institution ah. flexing its muscle. Yeah, I see. Oh, that's interesting. So do you have a big vision? I do have a vision. I have a vision <laughs> where the government does less better. Does less, less does, better. Does less better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I think that in order for the government to be more transparent and more accessible and more inclusive, it needs to do less because oh, it's okay. expensive. Yeah, right. This cost really needs to come to the forefront of the conversation. Mm. It needs to be mm. factored into the budget. And we're not talking about that. Mm. So we're doing a lot that's not accessible, is not transparent. Mm. It might be good, but because we don't know, because we don't have access mm. to that information, mm. there's this lack of trust. It's a distance. Massive distance. Mm. So I would like the government to be more effective mm. in its accessibility and transparency of documents mm. and processes, which mm. I don't think anyone at the moment is talking about. They're talking about size of government. Yeah. Big yeah. government, small governments. I think that's but it's a wrong the quality, framing. Not it's the, the quantity. quality of the government, correct. Yeah, and I feel that quality should be measured through transparency and accessibility. Ah, that would be a way of measuring it that could be possible rather Correct. than outcomes, which Correct. are a bit harder. And subjective. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. if we measure transparency, which can be quantifiable, yeah. and accessibility, which can also be quantifiable through mm. the money and the investment mm. and the amount of people that access the information, yeah. Yeah. we could get to a better place. Oh, that's really cool. Do you have a sense of how that would sort of shape the economy differently? Oh, absolutely. I think that if we increase transparency and accessibility, we would have more participation mm. from people, which would hold the government accountable mm. and itself would generate better results. Mm. And I also think that it would force the government to talk about the economy in a way where it's the economies, yeah, okay. which was this yep. concept that was brought up in the well-being economy, economy conference. conference that both yeah. of us were at and I really liked that idea of talking about the economy as economies yeah and yeah. because I think we've simplified it to our detriment yeah and like the way I've been exploring economies is that it's the way that we share and the way that we interact it's just a basic part of human life that we need to survive absolutely so if you think about more people being included in economies then it's just more, more people's energy being part of 
the solution kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think as the population of New Zealand grows and diversifies further, mm. more smaller groups are going to mm. pop out, mm. right? And mm. we're going to have to develop economies yeah. that suit this diversification, not just of culture and identity and race and ethnicity, but mm. ages, ideologies, abilities, mm. skills, mm. interests. What's the role of startups, right? Mm. They are some of the most inclusive and flexible entities that uh, allow, yeah. for example, migrant yeah. women of color yeah, to participate. Right. Yeah. And I feel like the startup community in Wellington was my springboard. Yeah, I could have right. never accessed big companies mm, without. And mm. so I feel we need to talk more about that importance in order to be more inclusive. Mm, mm. Do you have any sense of what we need to do to get there? I do. I think we need to keep going. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mm. think we need to have hope. Mm, mm. I think we need to find role models. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to amplify work other people are doing mm, in mm. all possible. And we all can do that, mm, regardless mm. of what we're doing. We can amplify. We can yeah. share good stuff. No one needs to reinvent the wheel. Right, yeah, yeah. You mentioned role models. Do you have any? I do. I have many. Yeah. Politically, I really admire... Marilyn Waring, mm -hmm. that was a progressive and national. Oh, okay. Yeah. I really admire Metiria Turi and what she did for the welfare conversation, mm -hmm. the sacrifice she did by mm -hmm. disclosing that. I really admire Jacinda Ardern and how she campaigned and how her first term she dealt with the 15th of March attacks and how she demonstrated that compassion and strength mm. are achievable. Mm. I really admire James Shaw and the work he's done for climate change in this country formally with a zero carbon bill and the Climate Change Commission and the emissions yeah. trading yeah. scheme and all the heat he's taken from lawyers and mm. the agricultural mm. sector and the, I think him single-handedly has done a lot of that work. Yeah, right. I really admire Professor Tracy McIntosh from the University of Auckland. She's mm -hmm. Chief Science Advisor in the Ministry of Social Development. Mm. I really admire Professor Jonathan Boston mm -hmm. from the Victoria University and the mm -hmm. work he's done for government. The list goes on and on. Yeah. I, I spend time finding role models yeah, and yeah. then just trying <laughs> to see what they have yeah. that I can imitate in any way. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and what are you up against? I'm up against two things. I'm up against institutions. Uh -huh. I find them really difficult to influence, really difficult to shape, really yeah. difficult to yeah. change, really mm. difficult to hold accountable. And I also up against people's certainty. Ah, oh, okay. That's interesting. Mm. What do you mean? People's idea that what they know is certain, mm. is robust, mm. and it's inflexible mm. this confusion that we have that the more certain i am the better i am mm. which is a complete missed reverse causality like yeah it's actually the it's opposite the opposite yeah the strongest metals are the most flexible metals <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're yeah. confused yeah we are so confused and we wear our certainty as a badge of honor yeah and the more flexible you are, people think that that's weak or not having a stand. Mm, mm. And I find that, especially in politicians, mm. really problematic. Mm, mm. It's sort of a cultural thing across the board. I feel like yeah. that was something we learned at university, or maybe even school. 
Yeah, and I th- and I think it's I, there's I understand why it's happened, and I understand that because of the role of social media and the quality of our information mm. at the moment is so low. Mm. Not only we're not consuming high quality information, mm. but we're also not producing high quality information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel it's everyone's responsibility to do this better. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um. Do you have a sense of what would help? <laughs> yeah, I think. We underestimate the power of validation. Oh, yeah. And yeah. encouragement. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, just externalizing. If someone did something that has impacted you, mm. please tell them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> At least me, tell me mm-hmm. if there's anything I do that in any shape, way, or form has impacted your thinking. Yeah. Please tell me. Well, that's right. I actually saw you at one point. And I, it made me remember, I still haven't told you how much that TEDx Wellington Women was influenced me and how much it was a pivotal point. And so it gave me the prompt to send you a message. And that message means everything, because when I have self-doubt and the overly critical voice kicks in, I read your text. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and it yeah, grounds yeah. me. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, yeah. I can keep going. You mentioned... I think when we were talking before about being a migrant and thinking that you're wrong all the time. All the time we're being told we're wrong. Yeah. By other people. Yeah. And I've just grown to be very comfortable. <laughs> okay. And just to expect that I am. Yeah. I, I have that too. I, just, <laughs> yeah. I assume I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. All the time and seeking to fill my blind spots. And I think I have a level of self-awareness that allows me to be very comfortable. The mm. dyslexia mm. also... Mm. The indoctrination of, I can't do anything ever. Uh, because yeah. the academic system is just built for you to read and write. Yeah, and when yeah. you can't do any of those things really young, mm. you are forced to develop a sense of self mm. and drive right. and motivation yeah. that I think has held me in good ah, stead. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm not a perfectionist because of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm a good enough person. Yeah. And yeah. I'm more of an integrity. Mm. Like I mm. value integrity more than perfection. Mm. Mm. Because you're really kind of going against the grain in going into the political realm with the, and standing for not being certain. Yes, and my whole campaign is grounded on collaboration versus mm. competition. Mm. And I get undermined a lot and people are like, well, maybe you don't stand for anything mm. or that's very naive or mm. politics isn't about collaboration it's about winning and losing and Mm. I feel fundamentally that that's wrong and that if the only thing I can do for my trench and for my tiny little circle of influence Mm. is run a campaign in Wellington Central where I demonstrate Mm. that you can campaign on collaboration (laughs) and not competition and that's the only thing I do yeah yeah that's all I can do I find it quite interesting that you've studied institutions Mm. and that that's what you're up against but that's what you're interested in as well Mm. yeah yeah I do I think I'm interested in it because I'm up against it yeah yeah. my motivation to study institutions was Mm. because when I was working as a public servant and I was seeing the unfair treatment of different groups Mm. I was motivated to understand why that happened. And so mm. my whole master's research project was understanding the internal processes right, yeah. of the government and yeah, why, right. if legally you couldn't do those things, we were still doing them in an informal mm. way. Mm. What is it that holds an institution that doesn't allow an institution to shift? Yeah, so what I've learned is that the institution is the papers, the paper trail. 
Yeah, right. So you go from the people to the institution through the paperwork, the policies, yeah, yeah. the code of conduct, mm. whatever's written, mm. that then becomes the institution, a faceless, mm. legitimate authority yeah, that dictates yeah. people's decisions. It becomes an authority. It becomes the authority that then mm. people follow. Yeah, yeah. And because they were being so ineffective against supporting migrant women of color mm. or mm. trans people or disabled people, I decided to study that yeah. to understand yeah. how to hold them accountable. And yeah. I have fallen in love with throwing rocks at it and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and knowing you, that you can't fight a formal institution with informal processes. Right. You can't treat an institution like a person. Correct. You mm. cannot. And you cannot advocate against an institution as a person. You need yeah. to advocate to an institution as an institution. Yeah, right. And through papers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which makes it slightly difficult to be dyslexic. <laughs> Very difficult to be dyslexic. And so that's also kind of carved my journey and my interest by accident in terms yeah. of accessibility and my capacity to hold them accountable when I can't absorb all mm. that at the speed and pace that I have to. Mm. Um, and that's really my dyslexia, my upbringing, my need to work to survive like mm. I couldn't go back to Mexico there were no plan B's yeah I didn't have a plan B and so that need to survive has driven everything I'm doing now yeah right you mentioned before how you admire advocacy groups in mm -hmm. New Zealand mm -hmm. can you say a bit more about that yeah I find advocacy in New Zealand really fierce mm. in a way that I didn't experience in Mexico, Canada, and the States. And what I mean by that is that they're very focused, mm. they're very effective, mm. they're very organized, mm. and they are undoubtedly there. Mm. Mm. Like there's no question yeah. of their effectiveness. And you can see it with Te Reo Māori, yeah. you can see it with the third gender in the census that was included mm -hmm. this year. Mm. Like these are political outcomes that have come from fierce and effective and yeah. relentless advocacy yeah. from all sorts of groups, climate, gender, yeah. feminism, yeah. disabled, mm. Maori. The advocacy is relentless and it's so organized and I'm always just inspired mm. and they give mm. me so much hope because oh, I know that cool. they won't stop. Yeah, yeah. I um, worked for the government for a little while and when I first came into the government I had this belief that it was a good place to be to help um, mm -hmm. created a space to sort of serve the country but it was only a few weeks in I think mm -hmm. that I became so busy that I didn't mm -hmm. have time to think about those systematic or mm -hmm. those larger things anymore. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that there are these advocate groups that have this strong passion for change and that they can potentially work with the people and organizations. Absolutely, and they do. There are public servants that work with these advocacy groups. There are advocacy groups that are relentless with government. Mm -hmm. And I would like for the government to have better mechanisms to hold them accountable because I think that's what the advocacy groups are facing and mm. are fighting against mm. is this lack of capacity to hold the government accountable and we right. can't hold yeah. them accountable because they're not fully transparent. Right, okay. 
So it comes back to that transparency. That transparency and accessibility thing yeah. for me is key because mm. I think it's hindering a lot of the progress that we want to see. Mm. Mm. Another thing I've been exploring a bit in this project, we were both at the Wellbeing Economy mm -hmm. Symposium a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and um, one of the themes that I saw coming through there was that the economic systems embody mindsets or ways that we think about the world. Our current ones are sort of based on individual focus mm -hmm. and we need to transition to more interconnected ways of thinking about the world. There was some Māori speakers who spoke from that place and um, I feel that New Zealand is a really interesting and good place to be because of this dialogue between the indigenous worldview and the sort of more western worldview and I just wonder how you reflect on that and also because there's such a diversity of people coming from so many places in New Zealand. Mm. Yeah I find that to be quite complex for me personally mm. and mm. I'll share something that I've never shared I don't <laughs> think before yeah. which is I don't want to be part of a community. <laughs> <laughs> What, I don't. What do you mean by that? I want to be left alone. I want to do what I want when yeah. I want. Yeah. I don't want to be part of a group. Mm. I don't mm. want to be told by a community what to do. Yeah. I don't care about. <laughs> I don't want to care about everyone all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I work really hard to stay out of the system, to stay out mm. of community groups. I work hard on my health. Mm. I work hard on my financial situation so I don't have to rely mm. on anybody. Mm. And because of my upbringing and having been left alone and the neglect and the abuse and the instability and the mm. moving between countries and my ambiguous identity, mm. I don't, like communities make me feel very inadequate very quickly. Mm. And mm. there isn't one that I want to be mm. a part of. Mm. However, I understand, I don't see myself as a community member. I see myself as a citizen. Mm. And I'm a responsible citizen. Mm. I upskill. I help. Yes. I serve. Yeah. I pay taxes. I work. And yeah. my way of giving to the communities by staying out of the system. Mm. Mm. However, I want the system to work for people that need community and want community. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like we're in a liberal democracy in a reckoning with its colonizing mm. capitalist mm. nature mm. that we have to go through that I want to make sure happens. Yeah, yeah. Whilst I'm not being told that what works for everyone, what works for one group works yeah, for everybody. Yeah. Because, and the best example I have is ideas in terms like Whakafanangatanga and Whakapapa and Turanga Waiwai mm. make me feel very anxious. Yeah, yeah. I don't want, I don't have a place. Mm. Mm. I was uprooted very young. Mm. I was abandoned by the people that were meant to protect me mm. very young. Mm. I was left alone in different places all the time. And having to share this mm. or think about it mm. or make something up mm. makes me feel just really inadequate. Mm. That doesn't mean that I don't want that for yeah, New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. They're different things and I would hope that we could live in a society where both could coexist. Well, it's so real. I mean, yeah, I feel disconnected from the land where I've come from and and there I have 
um, a Māori friend who feels very disconnected from where they've come from mm. and there's such a complexity of mm. relationships with our ancestry and with the land. I have no idea where I came from. I don't yeah. know my dad. I don't know my mum's mum. Mm. I don't know anything mm. about my family. Mm. And having to think about it mm. feels like such a burden mm. individually. And I don't want to have to do that if I don't want to. Mm. Our mm. institutions are another thing. Yeah. They have a yeah. responsibility. They have a responsibility under Titiritio Waitangi. They have a responsibility under the Human Rights Act. That's different. Mm. But in, and even just making those distinctions, like what are our responsibilities institutionally mm. and our responsibilities individually? Mm. And I think mm. making that distinction could help foster a more uniting conversation, more yeah. than a divisive one. Because it's about all of us being able to be ourselves and Correct. be in conversation. Whatever that is. And for yeah. me, it feels like, just leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? Like, I don't yeah. want to be a part of anything. Yeah. I don't want to have to explain shit to people. I don't mm. want to disclose information. I yeah. don't want to have to connect to things and places. Mm. But you play your part. And you Absolutely. Contribute. And I take mm. it very seriously. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. But mm. I feel we've accommodated this conversation in a zero-sum competitive way, mm. which feels that I'm losing mm. because I don't want to connect to things mm. and people mm. and places. It's a really interesting counterpoint to having the other conversations about place. And yep. it feels very important to include that. In I would hope so, but mm. at the moment I find it really hard. And mm. that's what I said, it's the first time I've ever shared this. Mm. I mm. don't talk about this mm. because sometimes it just feels too hard. Yeah. And I do what I can to yeah. open my mind, to be flexible, to think about things differently, to try and identify to a place, try and connect to a community. Yeah. And I keep coming back to it's just not for me. And hopefully yeah. I can get to a place where I feel calm saying that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd like to live in a country where each of us can be ourselves mm. and really listen to each other. Mm. Yeah. And accept. Yeah, and accept each other. Mm. Yeah. And maybe grow something or many things, grow new economies. economies. That's why the economies yeah. resonated so much for me because I was like, oh, that feels really good. Mm. All the different ones. Mm. Not one that needs to suit everybody because yeah, we yeah. won't get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sort of diversifying and mm. I like the idea of life popping up mm, yeah. <laughs> in all different places. Well, um, yeah, my, my last question is, if you can imagine that you're 85 years old and sitting in your favorite chair, sipping a beverage and looking out at a nice view, what do you feel most proud of in your life? Mm. My marriage, mm. Michael, my husband, and the relationship we've built because I didn't grow up with a good role model of what that looked like finding mm. a healthy relationship ah, seems yeah. like I I beat the odds mm. and I'm incredibly proud of that <laughs> yeah yeah I'm really proud of how I've carried myself in New Zealand mm. the decisions I've made the risks I've taken and staying true to myself mm. not being a good responsible citizen and tangata titiriti while not compromising who I am mm. And I feel very proud of how I've run the Wellington Central campaign in yeah, spite cool. of the odds. Yeah, I'm almost yeah. done and I feel I have held true to that commitment of collaboration over competition. Mm, mm. Yeah, I like the sense that you're being yourself in spite of, I think you said something before about you're doing things for yourself, not for social capital. Correct. And that's very important to me to calibrate and my judgment and make decisions based on who I am and what I am and not on whether I'm going to gain social capital from mm. people out of mm. it or not. Mm. I heard uh, there was a quote I heard a few days ago 
it's difficult to listen to myself because what I say is quite strange. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and sometimes what I think is like, that's controversial. Like what I think won't be popular and doing it in spite of that thought mm. is what I'm proud of. Yeah, yeah. That I do that consistently. And I feel like it is popular. Well, I... I it depends how we define, but I guess that social <laughs> yeah. capital component is like, yeah, harmony isn't something I prioritize. Mm, I prioritize mm, honesty yeah, and accountability yeah. and yeah. transparency. I don't prioritize harmony. But you prioritize communication, which helps. I do. And mm. I wish that through my communication, then I can gain some harmony. Mm, but mm. I don't compromise mm. myself for harmony. Yeah, cool. I like that. Well, um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been incredible. Thank you, Lou, for inviting me. It was uh, beautiful. Thank you. And I look forward to finding out what happens next in your life. Thank you. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> the show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com.